Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of the Micro Moment. We're here talking science and sci-fi, and of course, I'm one of your hosts, John. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm Julie. And today we're diving into part two of our science fiction microbe moments. So if you didn't listen to our last episode, part one, it was super fun. We talked about Star Wars. We talked about Star Trek. We talked about Andy Weir's first book, The Martian. And we talked about H.G. Wells, The War of the Worlds. And today we're coming back with four more micro moments of science fiction. I think there's actually a, a few more in Star Trek. We're going to talk about the original Star Trek series. We're going to talk about Next Gen, one of my favorite TV shows of probably all time. And we're talking about another Andy Weir book called Project Hail Mary, which I totally fell in love with. And I promise not to ruin anything on that book because it's less than a year old. And I feel like that's rude if I spoil it for y'all. And then what is our final micro moment of today? It's actually a paper on a micro, but it does tie in heavily to Star Trek The Next Generation. Resistance is futile. The Borg. Great. It's going to be super lots of fun. But first, before we dive into any of that, I have a question for the two of you. What was most surprising when you guys were researching the science fiction micro moments? That bunches of people are on the internet making all of these like really serious science sounding either for or against just the science of it. I, I just found it fascinating that people like have blogs and YouTube videos and like all kinds of things talking about really a made up story and defending or or trashing things. I thought that was really interesting. And that we're not the weirdest people on the internet. Nope. Not the not by a long shot. That's good. Jen, what was your biggest takeaway? I mean, it's pretty much the same thing. It's like how these things are being dissected by fans and the scientific community alike to see how plausible they are or how far-fetched they are. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. My biggest takeaway is that all of these moments that we're talking about are things that I have had to, or not had to, but chose to interact with in the past, either watching or reading certain things, but never really noticing that they had micro moments until I started looking at it through this lens and trying to understand where can we find micro moments, and you really can find them everywhere and in everything. Which I think just proves my point and my purpose on this earth to share with everyone that everyone and everything has a micro moment. Every day, all day. Every day, all day. So let's dive into part two of our science fiction micro moments. And let's see, should we do chronological? Should we do all Star Trek first? How you wanna? How you wanna dish this out? How do you wanna do it? Um, let's break up the Star Trek a little bit. Okay. So we're going to start with Next Gen, or we're going to start with OG? I guess we'll start with OG. The OG. The original Star Trek, in case you do not know, is the one that stars James T. Kirk and Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock. Yep. Not to mention... Chekhov. Chekhov. Bones. Sulu. McCoy. Scotty. And of course, Ahura. Do not forget about Ahura. Yeah, she just died. Yeah. That's sad. She's a huge advocate for uh, people going into science. Yeah, and into space. Yeah. So we're going to go into the first season, I believe, of the OG Star Trek 
The episode is called The Devil in the Dark. So dramatic. That's Anna Delphi level drama. Do you even know how I am? Do you even know how I am? <laughs> but uh, all right. Let's let's get into a synopsis of the episode. So, like it. I said, the first part of this was like premium campiness of television. so campy. So the episode starts on a mining colony of the planet Genesis, where one of the miners is being killed by an unknown creature. Bum, bum, bum. When the Enterprise comes, Spock, Bones, and Kirk were told that it all started with equipment being eroded further down. But the people that started to die while trying to fix it equipment. It seems like they were being eaten away like an extreme corrosive from the creature. So the mining crew also found these silicon spheres all over the place in the mines that somehow caught the attention of Spock. But shortly after their arrival, the creature ends up destroying a pump of the reactor, resulting in a situation where where the reactor could go critical and kill everyone. Luckily, Scotty's there, and he ends up bringing a temporary one, which ends up failing eventually, but gets him a little bit more time. Everyone assumes that the creature is trying to push all the coloners off the planet due to how precise the damage was to the reactor pump. And that humans always think that everyone's trying to kill them because they're the center of everyone's universe. Right. And while talking to Kirk... And Bones, Spock speculates that maybe this creature is silicon-based due to its ability not to be harmed by certain phasers despite Bones saying it's impossible. And this is one of the campiest scenes because his speculation comes out of nowhere. And I'm trying to follow his logic, like scientifically, I'm like... There's a lot of leaps uh, to really vague terminology actually in that episode. So the crew go in search of it and... Confirm it's silicon based. Oh, but you forgot to say that they turned their phasers one into oh, phaser yeah. two. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, they made this whole deal like all the colonists had phaser ones, but they could hurt the creature with phaser twos. And only the people on the USS Enterprise could make their phasers into phaser twos. Yeah, it is very heavily talked about several times. <laughs> they wanted to make sure everyone knew about it. So, Kirk and the crew go and search for it and confirm it's silicon-based, and it can tunnel through rock and starts killing red shirts per usual. Yeah, those red shirts, I never do survive an episode. But Spock and Kirk end up wounding it. It is there that they f- found that there are tons of tunnels made, and Spock speculates that the creature is the less of its kind, but the fact that over 50 people were killed makes Kirk make the decision to kill it. But at the beginning, Spock wants to keep it alive, which seems logical. He's like, this is the last creature. I don't think it should die. It's kind of wrong. Very Star Trek. Very Star Trek. Kirk ends up being cornered by the creature and is split up by Spock. Oddly, at this point, Spock gets emotional over Kirk's well-being and tries to kill it after it initially tried to kill Kirk. And they beat, uh, end up reuniting, and they find thousands of the silicon balls. And Spock performs a Vulcan mind melt with the creature and finds it's in pain and didn't want to hurt any of the miners initially, but the miners started killing all of its eggs, and so it was kind of a defensive measure. You do not mess with the mama. Nope. nope. Because this creature is injured by Kirk and Spock, Kirk asks 
Bones to come down and heal it. Bones has no idea how to do it, but... Are you going to tell everyone what his... his... You you say it. (laughs) I'm not a bricklayer, Kirk. I'm a doctor. Yeah, (laughs) because it's silicone-based and made out of rock. And despite this, Kirk expects Bones to treat it, despite not knowing hell the hell to treat an organism that he's never seen before. Can he just wave that thing over him? I mean, that's what he started with, and then he got some cement and kind of shoved it oh, in yeah. the pizza rug monster, and everything was fine. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, he, 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 like, put this mold on it. It was pretty much like, it's pretty much like, a, what, a cement? Yeah, it's like a wet cement. He just kind of shoved it in the hole and was like, all right, you're all better now. So it's this time that we find that the creature is called a horda. And the miners almost kill it. They actually like kick the butt of all the redcoats trying to prevent, or not redcoats, red shirts trying to prevent them from entering the mine. Yeah, they like hit him over the head with bats. It was violent. Yeah, it was pretty bad. And then Kirk and Spock tell him like, no, you were killing all its younglings. This is the last surviving creature and it's just defending itself. And the miners start feeling bad. However, the creature, which ends up being called a horda, and the miners end up striking a deal with that the Horda will tunnel throughout the mines and the miners will, yeah, synergy, cooperate. Collaboration. Collaboration, yeah, they collaborate. And the miners get rich and the Horda survive. And so that's the end of the episode. They all live in harmony at the end. So what the heck does this have to do with astromicrobiology? So... I do have to admit, this doesn't deal with microbiology aspect. It deals with astrobiology. I kind of went broader with this one because they talk about silicone-based organisms, which is a big question. Is there, can there be silicone-based life forms? Why would we even think that? This comes from the idea that silicon is very similar to carbon because we're carbon-based life forms. Everything on Earth is carbon-based. Mm-hmm. It can bond up to four other atoms, just like carbon. It's close to carbon on the periodic table and is widely available in the universe. It may be able, theoretically, be able to form similar structures like carbon. But no, it's not possible, at least on Earth-type planets. Why? This is due to the fact that silicon in water or in an oxygen environment would react with the oxygen and quickly form silicate rock. So it oxidizes quickly. Oh. Not to mention there are a few organic, very few organic silicon compounds that are found on Earth. But there are some? There are some. There are some organisms that can like use silicon and build structures with it, I believe. Huh. Yeah. Also, carbon can form CO2 gas as a byproduct of metabolism. And that leaves the cell... Pretty easily, right? Yeah, I guess like all our cells. However, silicon would form a stable lattice instead of gas. That would require an organism to excrete it. A lot more energy used to excrete it than, say, gas. Pile that to like everything. That is a very energy-consuming process to live. Which is not the way evolution works. Right. What is the easiest, most energy-efficient way? Right. So on Earth, that's a no-go. Apparently, an environment rich in sulfuric acid could theoretically support the or- support organosilicon chemistry. 
So possibly the clouds of Venus or Io, one of Jupiter's moons, at least according to Petroglian colleagues, could theoretically... According to who? Going to butcher the name. Petkowski, sorry, and colleagues. Another issue is that silicon is an inert element at temperatures that we are used to. And if organisms were to exist that are silicon-based, they would have to live in extremely high temperatures. And they actually have termed these lava lobe or magmobes. Okay, magma and lava. Right. Extreme thermophiles. It also sounds like, so in the end, it sounds like it may be possible, but very unlikely. Well, definitely unlikely on Earth. Yeah, but it'd be very unlikely that there'd be silicon-based life forms. But according to Alexander Graham Carrens Smith, it's a lot. Wait, that was all one name? Yeah. So many names. Silicate, you know, the rock form, uh-huh. could have played a role in forming life. Mm. So I hope I got this correctly. We have handedness in elements, right? Yeah, left hand and right hand. Yes. Or morning sickness. Not elements, um, L- molecules. L and D. Yeah. We we decided to turn the left and right handedness. It's it's called like what is it, chiral compounds? They Chirality. They're like mirror opposites. So the silicate could have had a hand in right handed carbohydrates, which are oxidized by enzymes that have right handed amino acids. So because of that, silicate could have helped start life on Earth. It's at least a theory. As a left-handed person, how do you feel about right-handed carbohydrates? I think they're pretentious. <laughs> Such a dumb question. <laughs> <laughs> so in the end, theoretically, but highly unlikely, I think it would be much more easier for carbon-based organisms to live. I mean, definitely on Earth. Yeah. That's the way we did it. So do you have any other thoughts about silicon-based organisms? No, I don't think I do. I think you covered it pretty well. Julie, do you? Well, I wanted to, one of the things that we talked about last time with the the tardigrade and how it uh, attacked people, it was kind of similar to this where it only attacked because it was being attacked. So it was defending itself. Um, So I think that is a, When you think about, you know, microbes that are, or any being that's doing stuff, um, you kind of have to look at the motives and see when you, before you pass judgment. But that kind of struck me when you were talking about that. And one last thing I will say, like looking up silicon life forms, this Star Trek episode was referenced in everything I was reading. Yeah, it was probably like the first time Hollywood sort of tackled this, this sort of theory. Yeah. It's a fun episode. It's definitely worth a... Uh, sorry. One more thing. The cheesiest thing, they had a Matt Payton in the background. However, if you looked closely in multiple scenes, they had a guy crouching with a phaser shifting from left and right in a nervous position, and they had him repeating that throughout the entire episode. This is just like on a roll. It, was, it just kept going, and it kept going, and it kept going. Same guy, same pose, entire episode. That's my last rant about the episode. Although there are probably some others we could go on. No, we're not going to go into them. But we'll save you. We'll save you the rants. And we'll dive into... I kind of want to talk about next gen. Can I talk about next gen? Yeah, let's talk about next gen. Okay. 
So we're going to, I don't know, go into the future a little bit. A little bit in the future of James T. Kirk. A little bit in the future from when James T. Kirk was filmed. So this is the 90s. I believe it was 96, 4, 8. Um, I, it depends on what you're talking about. Next gen. Oh, that spanned into the 80s, into the 90s. Yeah, but when was the last episode? I want to say it was like 94. 94. I think 94. That sounds right. So this is the very last episode of Next Generation. This is season seven, episode 25, All Good Things. It is, as I said, the very last episode in the series. It's a very good episode. It opens in star date 47988 when Jean-Luc Picard interrupts a near kiss between Counselor Troy and Worf. Picard believes he's been ping-ponging through time and there's only one person in the universe could who could be this pinball wizard. Mm, it's not Elton John. It is not Elton John. Suddenly we meet Picard as a much older man in a big sun hat and a white beard. There's a vineyard when Jordy comes strolling down one of the rows. It's 25 years since either of them have been on the USS Enterprise. Jordy offers a hand to Jean-Luc and looks at a leaf and declares, you have leaf miners, leaf miners, and suggests the use of a bacillus spray to combat the disease. And that's it. That's the micro moment in Next Gen. It is a simple one-liner, and I'm going to talk about a little bit about bacillus sprays and microbes in agriculture. Well, there's one quick one afterwards in that episode. Oh, yeah. You want to tell everybody about that one? They have a medical ship called the USS Pasteur, I believe. Yes. Although they didn't explicitly say, we all know that Pasteur is the one, the fantastic, the best microbiologist, some say one of the best scientists of all time, Monsieur Louis Pasteur. That's the one. And if you want to learn more about Louis Pasteur, we have another podcast about it. I believe it was last December we talked about it in our Microbial's birthday bash where we talked about Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch and their little feud that they had. That sounds about right, time-wise. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're not talking about that. We're going to talk about plants. So as I said, this spoils nothing of the whole episode. It's a wonderful episode. Some say it's one of the best season enders ever written. It's definitely a season ender that leaves you feeling satisfied, very nostalgic, but not angry in the way that they ended it, which is often how I feel when a lot of seasons end. Yeah, like when they end a show, a lot of times it's like, why did you why 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 did you go this route? Yeah, or like why did you have another six seasons because you should have ended it at season three? Right. But for now, we're gonna leave this future, leave this season, and come back to the present, to where we are in developing our own bacillus spray to stop leaf miners or any other plant pathogen that plagues our current food supply. So bacillus is quite ubiquitous in most environments. It's one of the those genres which can be considered a generalist. It is capable of living in a variety of environments, including grapevines. You can find it throughout the grapevines. I know that from personal experience when I spent five and a half years looking at the microbiome of grapevines. 
But the search for sprays, chemicals, and microbes to save our agriculture is not one we are leaving for the future, but one that we've been trying to tackle actually for some centuries, especially in wine where people get very particular. Antagonistic microbes to plant pathogens, which are called biocontrols, are not a new thing. In the early 20th century, trichodermia, streptomyces, penicillium, aspergillus are among the first biocontrol studies, and they're still studied to this day. Penicillium, if that sounds familiar, is of course the same genre of fungus that created the first antibiotic, penicillin, which we know from our various dives into Alexander Fleming's life. However, it is not until 1979 that the EPA registered its first biocontrol, which goes to Agrobacterium radiobacter, to control crown gall, which is a disease that impacts grapevine. See, grapevines are throughout plant pathogen, throughout plant histories, and are very important microbe-plant interactions. Because everyone likes wine. Every day is wine time. Every day, especially Wednesdays. Yeah. As of 2005, which is a little bit dated of a statistic, of course, but in 2005, the EPA had 14 bacteria and 12 fungi, which were registered as biocontrols. Today, I assume that number is even more, but this was the latest statistic I was able to pull out. There's actually a lot of evidence that microbes and a bacillus spray may be in our future as a pathogen suppressant. Plant-associated microbes can produce plant hormones, solubilize phosphate, fix nitrogen, as we talked about with the Martian, and increase root architecture. They have an impact in soil fertility and also in nutrient cycling, such as carbon and nitrogen. Microbes have also been linked to activating plant defenses, similar to the way that our gut microbiomes are able to train our own immune systems. This process is known as priming or sometimes called induced systemic resistance. So this is one of the fundamental immune responses in plants. This is not something humans do, although we do have somewhat of a priming aspect. Microbes can even in plants produce plant hormones like indole acetic acid, or they can also produce volatile organic compounds, which have also been linked to suppressing disease. As we all know from previous episodes of the Micro Moment, microbes also produce antibiotics to defend themselves, as we said with penicillin just a couple moments ago. Not only are they living in the ecosystem, they are also competing with microbes for both space and for nutrients. So there's a lot of evidence, a lot of ways that we know microbes can help plants and can help our food and agriculture systems. The pick of the genre bacillus for Picard's microbial cure is also not far from reality either. As I mentioned, bacillus is found pretty well in throughout the grapevine ecosystem. In addition, Pseudomonas and Streptomyces are also known to attribute to plant health. But these microbial solutions are, well, not really solutions as we see it in the finale of Next Gen. They have their limitations and we haven't quite been able to harness the true power of these microbes to come up with a foolproof cure against a lot of our pathogens. Currently, our best bet, our best way to combat these pathogens in real life in today's time is through the use of synthetic pesticides, most of which are broad spectrum. 
worldwide is estimated that $20 billion is spent yearly on spreading 2.5 million tons of pesticides. This is a huge amount. These pesticides and those dollars don't just stop there. We are finding that our pesticides, while trying to increase global food production, are also causing a lot of harm, not only to our biodiversity and soil health, but are also causing a lot of medical issues within our own human health. This is usually attributed to people who aren't wearing the proper or not given the proper protection when they're spraying the pesticides. Not to mention that when you're spraying a pesticide that is a broad spectrum, a lot is not actually making it onto the plant. And so they have to spray copious amounts so they get an adequate amount on the plants. And what's left over is going into our waterways, is going into the air, is being dispersed into other environments. It's so like back in the day, my dad said that they used to have uh, these trucks spraying DEET everywhere and they would just frolic. Yeah. Oh, DEET is, I mean, we DEET, I think it was DEET. DEET. DEET has a history for sure. Well, people still use it. Yeah, but not like they used to. No, not like they used to. I mean, even when I was a kid, we don't use it the same way we did 20 years ago. But as we learn more and more about the harm to the environment, I do think that there is a good amount of consciousness, a good amount of brain effort trying to divert the use of synthetic pesticides and trying to find new alternative methods, these methods to both combat our pathogens and sustain human life and secure food for future generations. Hopefully, we find a new alternative method long before the next generation. See what I did there? It's a little play on words. Yeah, a little play on words. A little play on words. Yeah, so that is our little micro moment in next generation. I think there are others throughout the season but that's the one that always struck me because we watched it like when I was prepping for my defense I think was the last time I watched that episode and my defense was all about trying to find microbes to combat pathogens and grapevines and I was like oh they figured it out (laughs) so long before I actually did my PhD where I didn't actually figure it out anyways like I said fantastic episode very minor micro moment But a very important one to talk about agriculture, which we don't often get to talk about. And a lot of people like to ignore. But food is fundamental to life. It's probably our most important export? Import? I mean, it's my most important import to my mouth. (laughs) Anyway, let's talk one more time about Star Trek. Let's talk about the Borg. Resistance is futile. What a great story arc, though, too. I don't know if you could call it a story arc because it's like throughout almost all of Star Trek after that. I yeah, mean, but I mean like the story arc of Picard oh, yeah, yeah. becoming part of the Borg and like the guilt that he has to live with after that and everything that happens. And then they bring it back in with Picard and... Yeah, Lacutus. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. So I'm first going to talk about the Borg and Star Trek and then move to an article. So the Wait, wait, I just want to say the Borg spaceship always made me laugh. Because it's just this floating cube. It's just a floating cube. So that made you laugh, but the Death Star sphere, that was perfectly okay. I don't know. Something about sphere seems like it will survive <laughs> in space, but a cube, I mean Sphere, that's perfect. Cube, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> cube is ridiculous in space. Come on. Okay. That's why I'm not a physicist. So The Borg first showed up in Star Trek in The Next Generation Season 2, the episode 
called Q that was, Who. Came that early in Star Trek? Yep. So I'm taking this from memory, but pretty much what happened was Q felt that humanity was becoming too arrogant and he kind of wanted to put them in their place. He's like, oh, you really want to keep searching the stars? Well, there's things out there that you won't like. And he actually just pushes the Enterprise across the galaxy into the Delta Quadrant, I think. You can remember the quadrant from memory. Don't judge me. Nerd. <laughs> and that's where they meet up with the Borg. And first, the Borg aren't doing anything, and then the Borg start attacking the ship. They actually remove a section of the ship, kill some crew members, and they find out that they are severely outmatched when it comes to the Borg, this first encounter. Yeah, they don't stand a chance. Yeah, and... The Borg utter probably one of their most iconic things, which is, we will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. Very efficient, though. And so Q brings them back to their regular area of the galaxy, and they realize, crap, there is a serious threat out there. And after that episode, the Borg Q come back. Not just the next generation, but Voyager. And they're, I would say, like, the Star Trek universe, they are the biggest villain. You think more so than Romulans? Yes. More so than Klingons? Yep. I guess that's probably true, because they both, they make the Rom. well, they also make aspects of the Borg, Borg friends to them. Like, they make Klingons part of Starfleet. Yeah. And they make Romulans part of Starfleet eventually. So, like, and I don't know if they joined Starfleet, but definitely the Klingon Empire and the Federation are allies. They do have a war in Deep Space Nine. But yeah, the- well, I mean, like, at people from their Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah Like, yeah. you have Worf, and you have the, the Romulan and Picard. Forget his name. Yeah, but... If we go back to our example earlier of, you know, I mean, they're not defending an attack, but they're just growing their community, right? The way they do it isn't great, but are they being evil about it? No, like what I said, they're being efficient. They're doing it in the most efficient means necessary. All right. So I won't say villain. I will say antagonist, though. Mm -hmm. Okay. Antagonist works. And they always keep coming back. And like you had said, Picard becomes a Borg for a while. It becomes the cutest. And, uh, oh, my God. Let's see if I get this. I'll have to take a look later. It was like the Battle Wolf 1 or something was the big battle. If John is wrong, comment. Yell at him. But they end up getting Picard, saving his life. This is later on in the series. And he comes Captain again. But they are always around the corner. So what does this have to do with microbes? Yeah, do tell. Well, the original article is called Borgs are giant genetic elements with potential to expand metabolic capacity. This was the original scientific article? Scientific. I read the shortened version of it, but that's the original article. And it's from Basim et al. Good job, Basim, for bringing in some sci-fi into your research article. Yeah. Love it. So... Let's start with um, what are these Borgs that they're talking about? They are a DNA package 
those scientists have termed Borg, which may help fight climate change. These, I'm intrigued. Yes. So these structures were found in methane-consuming archaea. I'm going to butcher this. Methanoperidins, which can remove methane from the environment. And these structures contain genes which they believe were assimilated from other organisms and are known as ECE or extra chromosomal elements. Oh my God, I love it. Which microbes can use to package and transfer genes to other microbes, allowing the ones that receive ECE to gain beneficial genes, even if they are di distinctly related. And probably the most well-known of this is like plasmids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a horizontal gene transfer. Right. So this microbe was found in seasonal wetland pool soil, and Borg's DNA, the, oh my God, this is weird, saying Borg's DNA, the Borg DNA is linear and can be up to one-third the length of the microbe's genome, which is massive. Like, huh. plasmids are, you're talking tens of thousands of base pairs, but something like this is probably hundreds of thousands of base pairs. Well, the average, well, we're talking about archaea. I'm not really sure what their genome size, but average bacterial is 6 million base pairs. So we're saying a third, that's 2 million base pairs. That's pretty large. It is. Yeah. And the scientists end up sampling more sites that contain meth engines, and they end up finding 19 distinct Borgs with many of the genes similar to methane metabolizing genes. And these may actually be remnants of microbes the methanogens ate long ago. Aw, and just like cyanobacteria and mitochondria. Yeah, just like mitochondria, but the DNA of these packages have come from a wide range of organisms. So they, they were able to find out that this wasn't from just one. They're just consuming multiple organisms, possibly in, distantly in the past. And so this is an amalgamation of many different species that they believe. Archaea are so understudied. I know. Fascinating, though. Some of the genes in these packages also are for other metabolomic proteins, as well as membrane and extracellular proteins. The microbes are not able to be cultured, interestingly, just yet. So they're very limited in what they can study. The archaea are not able to be cultured? Yeah, as of right now. Can they take the Borgs and put them into other microbes, transform them? They might be able to replicate through PCR, mm -hmm. but then again, like, I, I, I don't know. But when they are able to grow these, they can do a lot more research on these ECEs. The Borg. Borgs may confirm an advantage as they seem to be a storage area for genes so that the microbe doesn't need to waste energy transcribing these genes until they're needed. Those microbes so efficient. So one of the things of that microbes have to really figure out is energy needs to be done for every step of the process for living. And if you're transcribing more and more genes, that's more energy you need to dictate to that instead of growing and multiplying. Yeah, which is why life is so exhausting. Yeah. So if they're able to just package this away and store it until when they need it, that is a huge advantage that they have. Mm -hmm. And scientists are also looking in their role for carbon cycling. So methane accounts for about 30% of human-driven global warming. And utilizing Borgs could engineer a microbe to break down methane faster and in greater quantities than what we have right now. Yeah. I mean, methane is a huge problem. It is. It produces more greenhouse gases than carbon dioxide, but we just have more carbon dioxide. Yeah. 
So I thought those, that, you know, many different species, just like Borgs, have assimilated many different species into the collective. And it's crazy how much DNA and genes there are there and how they can just like, you know, we're like, ah, I'm going to put this on the shelf for a while until like the situation's right. Then I'll utilize it again. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's totally fascinating. Love it. Okay, so should we move on to our fourth? Is it our fourth? I think it's our fourth and final micro moment in science fiction, part two. We are diving away from Star Trek and into a different field of science fiction, right? Yes, indeed. So we're going to talk about Project Hail Mary, which is by Andy Weir. It's a He's a New York bestselling author. He wrote the book The Martian, which we talked about on our last podcast in part one of our science fiction of the micro moment. Andy Weir brings us another incredible novel that's just riddled with nonstop micro moments. I mean, the main character is actually an astromicrobiologist, which is perfect for astromicrobiology season on the micro moment. I was instantly hooked with this book, and I even got one of my colleagues, Raphael, hooked as well. So we're both reading it. I finished it. I'm trying really hard not to spoil it for him. I totally spoiled it for John because I had to talk to someone about it because it was just so much fun. But hopefully John didn't mind too much that I totally spoiled it for him. Um, But I promise I am not going to spoil it for anybody else because I do think it's such a fun read. And I 10 out of 10 recommend kind of reading it if you have some time in the holiday season. And if you're not really big on reading things, I'm still not going to spoil it for you. I'd already got the go ahead from Hollywood to turn it into a blockbuster movie starring just, you know, a small actor called Ryan Gosling to play the astromicrobiologist. I don't know exactly when this movie is supposed to come out. I think it's in really early portions of production, if it's even in production yet, as Ryan Gosling is the only actor on IMDb being attributed to this movie currently. So I think it's in the pretty early stages, but maybe in a few years, we will see Project Hail Mary on the big screen. So instead of diving into a single micro moment, of this novel, as we've previously done with some of the other scenarios that we've talked about so far. I'm going to highlight some of the themes of the novel in hopes it gets all you cool cats jazzed to dive into this fantastic holiday read. So I'm going to list them off and I'm going to go ahead and pick on Julie to say if there's one that doesn't make sense to you, let me know. Stop me. We'll explain it a little bit on what it means, what its definition is. But once again, we are not going into how it is in this novel, but just that these themes are all portrayed in this novel. It is almost 500 pages in length, so it's a little bit longer of a book. That's why we can get all of these different micro moments and themes in there. The first theme that comes across in this novel is that mighty microbes are impacting the most massive of things, which we talk a lot about on this podcast, how microbes can change history, how they are impacting our everyday life, and how they impact our own health on a daily basis. It also goes into pathogens and immune systems. It gets into the theme of predators and prey. And of course, you can't talk about predator and prey without thinking of the whole circle of life, bringing it back to the Lion King. They also talk about evolution and how life evolves throughout time. They try to answer the question 
Does life exist on other planets? What are the requirements for life? Does life need water? Does it need carbon? As we already talked about in one of our other micro moments in this episode, we talked about silicon-based organisms or silicon-based life that doesn't necessarily need carbon. This book also dives into the theme of, is one life's essential nutrient another life's toxin? Everything that we think about is usually very attributed to our own lives and what we need to survive. But that doesn't mean that in other worlds and other lives, or even here on Earth, something that we need, such as when you're thinking about anaerobic microbes, we need oxygen, but oxygen can kill that anaerobic life. They also dive into the question or philosophy, if you will, if life exists out there, did it all stem from one ultimate ancestor across the entire universe and life simply adapted to the conditions it landed on? So this goes into that panspermia theory of does all life stem from a single origin in space? Maybe midichlorians. Maybe midichlorians, and we're all just a little bit of a Jedi. (laughs) It also looks at, does life have limits? We talked in our original Astro Microbiology podcast about the limits of life here on Earth, talking about the different extremophiles that we have. We have thermophiles that love heat, but there is a limit to how hot even thermophiles can get. We also talked about psychophiles, which are really cold. We talked about microbes that can live in vacuums. We talked about tardigrades who are able to live in space for a short amount of times. We also talked about radio, bacterium, dianococcus. Dianococcus radians. Dianococcus radians, there it is. That can survive in a vacuum even longer than tardigrades. But is there a limit to that? Or is that just a limit, a constraint that we have for life here on Earth? In other words, is our understanding, is it our understanding that limits our reality or is it really the limits of reality? It dives into themes like if we find intelligent life out there, how do we communicate with it? How can we travel at the speed of light to go to new galaxies and beyond? If space travel takes years to reach a final destination, how do you keep a human mind sane during the solitude and in cramped space? Oh, but wait, there's more. Because this book is just fascinating. I have so many things to say about it. How do you send data back to Earth from deep space once you're out there? And if you're able to keep the astronaut's mind sane, are microbes friends or foe or simply just existing for us to discover, exploit, and learn from? Which I think is a theme we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast as well. And then it also dives into other questions, which I never really even thought of, but is a good point. If you're in space and there's zero G, how do you use scientific instruments that do require um, a level of gravity, typically one that is of Earth's gravitational pull to use? Very difficult process. Very difficult process. Andy Weir tries to answer that question as well. And then he also talks about antibiotics, antibiotic microbial resistance, adaptive evolution, enrichment experiments. He talks about the power of collaboration and also the pains that come with collaboration because it's never quite as pretty as you think it should be. There's always some differences you have to overcome. He talks about selective pressure and he talks about microbiologists' worst nightmare, the dreadful contamination. Worst thing ever. Yeah, it just puts you back forever. Or maybe it destroys all of humanity. Who knows? I thought you were going to say the Borg. 
The Borg. No, not quite. Well, the Borg seems like it might save humanity. Might be a way to stop climate change or at least harness some of the ill effects of methane. And if that wasn't enough, if that's not enough scientific themes to make you dive into this science fiction book, he also steps upon one of the toughest concepts, something that nearly every scientific discipline, every scientist, probably every person has faced at one point in their life. And this, of course, is the inescapable and the horrible feeling of imposter syndrome. I 100% love this book. I love how most of science is pretty well explained, how most of it is basic, but have very giant steps in sort of driving the plot. And there's nothing too fancy in anything that he's saying, but it's definitely very clever. Andy Weir also does an incredible job at explaining the science and why it could work in the situation. I really don't want to say much more because this book is truly filled with just countless of micro moments and there's no way I can explain probably even one micro moment to you without totally spoiling the entire book because it's just that fundamental to the plot. It's fun, it's exciting, it's clever, and I just think that everyone should read it. If you have a chance this holiday season, you're looking for a new book, I don't think you can go wrong with Andy Weir's Project Hail Mary. So what do you think? Did I get you guys jazz? You want to read it? Yep. Probably not John because I already ruined it for him. <laughs> I already got the Cliff Notes version of it. I am going to get it and read it. Oh, it's so much fun. Be Ryan Gosling's second space movie? What was his first? That one with Jennifer Lawrence? No, it was somebody else. No. Who um, was that? He played- uh, Another pretty boy. Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt, the pretty boy. No, he played Neil Armstrong, I believe, in a movie, Going to the Moon. I didn't know Neil Armstrong was in a movie. No, he- portrayed neil armstrong i know i didn't know there were any movies about neil armstrong oh i guess that makes sense he was the first man to walk on the moon yeah kind of divided with that i'm not a huge fan of ryan gosling you don't like the notebook never watched notebook all right yeah i don't like those movies romance moments i'll take a sci-fi movie any day well he's about to be in one called project hail mary all right well, Microbial Nation, I believe that is the end of part two of the science fiction microbe moments. We really hope that you enjoy this little this little deep dive, shallow deep dive, I guess, into the world of science fiction. I think science and fiction have a beautiful relationship that really happens to expand our imaginations and allows us to see futures we never thought imaginable. I think what was hard about this was trying to figure out what we were going to actually look at because there's a lot out there. There are. And we would love to hear if you have other ideas or other micro moments in science fiction. Go ahead and find a post on at Microbials on Instagram or Twitter. Let us know if there are micro moments that we're missing in the science fiction world. And if you're like in astromicrobiology, don't worry, we got more content for you coming up. Don't you worry. We got you covered. Yeah, we're going to have one more interview, hopefully. And we will, of course, as we always do, close it out with a dub bomb of astromicrobiology. That is the best of microbiology. Well, in this case, the best of astromicrobiology. Keep tuned in. Go ahead and give us a like and review. Tell your friends. Send us your micro moments. And until next time. Bye. Bye.